you for joining us today for our sixth Shaver Cancer Charity Chat podcast. If you've listened to our previous podcast, thank you. And if you haven't, hmm, we hope that when you're driving to work or walking on your treadmill, you'll think of us and find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you typically listen to podcasts on. Your host today will be Roseanne Giovanato Shaver, and that is me, the Executive Director of the Randy Shaver Cancer Research and Community Fund, and Heather Austin, our Assistant Executive Director. For those of you that aren't aware, we are located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and have been raising funds for Minnesota's cancer community. At the end of this year, we'll have raised over $10 million for cancer research and community needs with all of the funds staying here locally. We have funded research at the University of Minnesota, We've also funded projects at Children's Hospitals, Alina Hospitals, and Mayo Clinic. If you'd like to see our current list of grant recipients, you can check them out on our website at randyshavercancerfund.org. Uh, right now, we're currently in the review process of applications as we speak, and we will decide upon the finalists at our annual advisory board meeting in January. Uh, speaking of our current list of funded research, one researcher who has been on that list since 2007 is Dr. Dan Valera, who we have the privilege of chatting with today. Uh, thank you, Dan, for being here. It's my pleasure. Rosanna. And to talk to us about your research, Dan is an old friend. Of course, uh, as you get to know these researchers over time, um, you, you tend to break bread with them and get to know them better as individuals. And uh, Dan and I have a lot of commonalities that we'll kind of go over as we, as we chat. Um, I'd like to give our listeners, Dan, a little bit of background on you. Um, and you can fill in anywhere that you think that I've missed something. Um, so feel free. Uh, you were born and raised in East Liverpool, Ohio, correct? Correct. Correct. Not, not too far from where you're from, Youngstown. No, exactly. So, <laughs> I, it, how crazy is this? Uh, so, we're we're years and years into our friendship, and your mom was needing some help, and you were telling me how you took her to the bank, and the bank sounded familiar to me. And here, the banker was my cousin. Your cousin. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> so here we're living in Minnesota. I mean, that's just nuts. Right. But I'm, this is how close Italians are, yeah. right? They they all stick together. So anyway, Dr. Uh, Valera did his undergraduate work and Ph.D. at Ohio State, correct? Correct. And what was your major? Uh, my major was uh, microbiology. Was The actual degree was in microbiology, but the okay. real emphasis was on immunology. Oh, really? So I, I worked with an immunologist there. And basically, immunology is the, is the study of, of, of how your immune system takes care and clears out any foreign substances that you have, including cancer. Okay. Okay, and at that time, did you have a focus on cancer at all, or what were you thinking when you were when you were going through undergrad and graduate school? Uh, well, I was thinking of completing my degree as quickly as possible at Ohio <laughs> 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 getting the heck out of there. Uh, no, not that Ohio State wasn't a great school; it, it, it was uh, had a lot of great times there and uh, a lot of good science. They had, they had great programs, and those programs actually have really continued to improve over the years, but. Uh, I think what I was really thinking at that time was that uh, I wasn't as interested in microbiology as a study of, of bacteria and fungi, which is what it actually is. I was more interested in, in how 
our own body uh, defends us against pathogenic bacteria and fungi and those kind of things. And I had some great instructors and ended up uh, being trained by a, a great mentor, which is Dr. Matthew C. Dodd at the university. He, he had eight graduate students at one time, and some of those graduate students have gone on. Uh, I know that uh, uh, Kansas Johnson, one of them, is, is now the uh, director of Roswell Park Cancer Institute. Mm. So, I mean, he trained some, some great people and gave them a really strong background. So uh, your first postdoc position was in the Department of Surgery at the University of Minnesota with renowned transplant surgeon, Dr. John Najarian. Um, for those that may not know of Dr. Najarian's background, um, he is a pioneer in thoracic transplant surgic, uh, surgery. Thoracic on the body is the middle section of your spine, starting right at the base of the neck and to the bottom of the ribs. And I just, I say that to those of you that don't know what thoracic <laughs> means. Because Thank you, I appreciate that. They, no, seriously, Heather, because, you know, we, we throw out words right. that we presume everyone understands, like pathogen. Like, well, well I don't, I don't know that when I started this, I knew what a pathogen was. I'm still learning every day. Yeah. So, so right. sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to, for those lay people out there, uh, we have to kind of break it, it down. Yeah, break it down. And so I'll try I, to make this relatable today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. So uh, when I moved here um, in the early 80s, uh, I think it was 1982, a little girl uh, by the name of Jamie Fisk, she was 11 months old, um, was saved uh, by a liver transplant um, that Dr. Nigerian pioneered. It was really, really a big deal. It was on, I remember Walter Cronkite, everybody. It was on every news station. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Give us a little insight. Well, Dr. Nigerian was a big deal, yeah, uh, I was. think, to the, uh, to the people of Minnesota. I mean, generally, he was a, a pioneer in transplant surgery. So coming out of Ohio State, you know, I had to make a decision for my postdoc. And a, a postdoc is, is sort of further training. After you get that piece of paper that says you're a PhD, then the idea is to go someplace and do an internship and actually learn something. So, <laughs> so uh, I had choices, and I could have gone to California, uh, or I could have gone to Tulane in Louisiana. Mm. And uh, the opportunity came to, uh, to, to, to study transplant immunology uh, here at the University of Minnesota. So uh, as I always do, I, I, I chose the worst weather possible and came to Minnesota. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and to this day, uh, I don't regret that decision. It, uh, so tra uh, transplant immunology is very interesting and, and important because it's really the, when, whenever you, you put a transplant into your body, whether it be a bone marrow transplant or whether it be a kidney transplant, your body regards that as foreign. And so uh, that involves your immune system. Your immune system tries to attack it and reject it. And so uh, it was a great opportunity to come and study with Dr. Nigerian, who was doing a couple of thousand kidney transplants, I think, right. even by the time I got here. Um, and uh, it was uh, a, a real opportunity to, to, to learn something uh, about the immune system, sort of setting that groundwork for, for cancer studies. So I really wasn't, wasn't doing cancer at that time. But Dr. Nigerian uh, was in, in, incredible from the standpoint that he was known for taking some of the most the hardest cases that, that other people wouldn't case. And in the case of Jamie Fisk, of course, uh, everybody was saying it was a big mistake to take that. that. And so Dr. Nigerian ended up transplanting her, her liver 
just a couple of days before her birthday. And he, he said to everybody, he says, this is going to be okay, and she's going to do fine. And she did, and the rest is history. Of course, the university grabbed that, and they ran with it. And, sure. and, 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 and it just wasn't that, though, too. He sort of set the foundation for all sorts of things uh, in, in, in the Department of Surgery in terms of transplant immunology for the future, and, uh, and, and that was his calling. And I actually, I worked with him, plus another immunologist, uh, the professor that, that I worked very closely with was John Schmidke. He ended up being uh, a, a director at Eli Lilly later on. Really? Hmm. Uh, but again, I, I didn't go with him to Eli Lilly. I decided to stay here in Minnesota because I love this weather so much. Sure, yeah, we go back to the weather. <laughs> you know, sarcasm. I have to Minnesota tell you. sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, a little side note, um, a sidebar. When Rand had cancer, um, his first bout of cancer, Hodgkin's, I was told by one of the physicians um, that early on, which I found this to be very interesting, that Dr. Nigerian, and I, I, I say this to you uh, third party because I, I never had a conversation with Dr. Nigerian about this, but he recognized or, or noticed that in transplantation patients, that down the road, further down the road, if a, a patient had a child had received a, an, an organ where the person that had been that originally had the organ had had mono, he noticed that down the road that these people that received these organs had a higher incidence of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, lupus and Hodgkin's disease and he made an, he made note of it and now we know um, it isn't factually based at this point because there hasn't been enough research on it but certainly it's something that I'm well aware of that obviously different viruses can affect the immune system and make you more susceptible to cancers and autoimmune illnesses is that correct that's correct mm -hmm. that's correct um, I, I would say something else too about the you know my experience in the Department of Surgery years ago, and that is 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 that what John Nigerian also did is he came up with the discovery of of, of a type of serum. It was called ant, anti thymocyte globulin. He, they called it uh, I'm sorry anti lymphocyte globulin. It was called ALG. And what they would do th this actually was uh, was an antiserum or an antibody mm -hmm. that they made against a patient's own lymphocytes. So they could give that to that patient, and it would suppress their immune system when you did the transplant, and they were less apt to reject. Mm -hmm. And so uh, working on that and being in the Department of Surgery at that time really set the ground for me because later on, uh, most of the drugs that I developed involved antibodies. Mm -hmm. And what the significance of that is is, is that if you make an antibody – let's say, to react against cancer cell, and you can somehow attach a drug or a toxin or anything to it, uh, you can then basically s give that to a patient, and that will uh, basically attack their cancer and, 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 and hopefully improve the disease. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to, I'm setting up the foundation for you, Dan, in that you tend to be, uh, you are a little bit ahead of the time in terms of synergistically working with others and taking the knowledge that you received and compounding it with something that you kind of wanted to do on your own. Um, so you went on, after you worked with Dr. Nigerian, you went on to do a second postdoc with Dr. John Kersey who I loved. Um, I did. I just love God rest his soul. Um, 
I love them too. Yeah, in hematologic cancers. And again, for those that you may, may not have heard of Dr. Kersey, Dr. Kersey led the U of M team that performed the world's first bone marrow transplant for lymphoma in 1975. The first lymphoma patient that Kersey cured, I believe, is still alive today. I've seen uh, photos of him at events at the U of M. I think his name is Dave Stahl. Uh, and he had a Burkitt's lymphoma. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty very cool. cool. Very um, cool. Tell us a little bit about your work with Dr. Kersey. Right. So coming out of the Department of Surgery, now I had gotten more interested in cancer research. And Dr. Kersey, of course, was is really you know noted for his work in the bone marrow transplant uh, field. Uh, it, particularly as it pertains as a treatment to cancer. Actually, bone marrow transplant, or today it's really called stem cell uh, transplant because it's a little bit more sophisticated. They actually, you know, uh, you know, enrich the stem cells and then do the transplant. Uh, the idea there is is that if a person has something like a leukemia, and the leukemia is basically a, a bad cancer of the blood system, you can come in and you can erase that with a radiation, and then come in with a bone marrow transplant from a hopefully pretty pretty well-matched donor, and that will come in and seed that new graft. That, that graft will seed into that person and then uh, basically create a new blood system that now will not have the cancer. And so that's the whole idea of bone marrow transplant. And so I was fascinated with that idea, uh, and, and I worked quite a bit with John on mouse models because uh, one of the best you, you, it's kind of funny when you think about it but uh, it, it you know if you're going to do a lot of bone marrow transplant uh, studies uh, you can get really sophisticated strains of mice now that that basically have certain genes or don't have certain genes but 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 they, they they're it's very sophisticated in the type of transplant you could do in mice and study them as a model of human bone marrow transplant sure sure interesting and then and then taking it you know, one step f further, uh, it's it's very interesting that when you do a bone marrow transplant, okay, that can happen, what I just described. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that when a person does a bone marrow transplant, uh, what they do is they they bend you over uh, a stool. It's really more sophisticated than just a stool. But they uh, use a big syringe and punch into your iliac crest. Your Sounds hip. horrible. It does sound horrible, but oh. you're asleep. when The donor is asleep. And these are do normal donors that are very generously agreed to sure. give a transplant because they match. And uh, when you, you're taking out this bone marrow then to do this life-saving transplant, mm -hmm. you also bring cells of that person's immune system. You can't help but do it. Correct. So, oh, good. So, yeah, good point. So what can happen is... The cells of that immune, the good thing that can happen is, is you'll get engraftment and that person then will, will have a successful transplant. Sure. The bad thing that can happen is those cells of the, of the donor's immune system can react against the patient's or the recipient's. Uh, graft versus host. And you get graft versus host disease. I was, and I was, I was wondering where you were going <laughs> with that. Right, but the right. lead into that is, is then what we were, we were very interested in developing uh, antibody approaches, very specific approaches to eliminate those T cells. So when you have taken that bone marrow and you have it now outside the patient, you're getting it ready to inject it into the recipient, mm -hmm. you have an opportunity then to purge it with some kind of antibody drug and get rid of those T cells. Oh, really? Yep. Cool. So in 2001, you decided you wanted to go out on your own. After working with uh, a number of really lauded individuals, you decided, well, you know, I'm going to go out on my own. 
and I'm going to produce anti-cancer drugs. That was a bit of a pivot. Uh, and that's just what you did. You put together a genetic engineering anti-cancer drug development program. And that's when everything really started. Tell me about that. I'll take a step back and get back to this uh, T-cell purging reagent that we did. Sure. And uh, when we were trying to purge these bone marrow grafts, uh, one important thing that we were doing uh, was working with a toxin. Mm-hmm. And that toxin was called ricin. Oh, sure. And ricin, uh, actually, ricin had become quite quite famous at that time as a, as a toxin. I was reading about it, and uh, it was actually used by the KGB to, to kill people because it was so toxic. And the way they did it is, is that they took the, the ricin, and they put it into these small little metal pellets and put those into an umbrella tip, and then they stabbed p- people. And there was evidence that the, the, the dissident that was killed was called Georgi Markov. He was a Bulgarian dissident. And when I was reading about this rice, and I was very fascinated, and I thought, well, any toxin that is that potent, you should be able to attach it to an antibody and then maybe use it as a tool that would kill something. So we began this whole thing tr- trying to get rid of those T cells. And when was this? Versus host disease. Oh, my goodness. That was it. This was in the 80s. Oh, was it in the 80s? It was in the okay. 80s. Okay. Okay. Right. into the archives. Yeah. You have, to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to go back for that one. But, yeah, so I, I linked up, and, and I was just really starting out at this time, mm-hmm. and I linked up with this group at National Institutes of Health, Richard Yule and David Neville, because I had read their paper where they had attached this to uh, uh, a mouse antibody and shown that it could actually del- eliminate cells like this. And so we began working at it in people. And then, sure enough, we were able to produce a drug get it through the FDA and actually try this in humans at the University of Minnesota. We did the first, this first type purging uh, with bone marrow here. And, and actually it worked pretty well with the exception that it turned out that there was something with those T cells that the T cells were producing that were actually happy, helping the engraftment part of the, uh, of the thing. Uh. So then we basically had to go back to the drawing board. Um, but this is a lead into your question about you know sort of how I I I, I sort of changed up to go into cancer because mm-hmm. already by doing these bone marrow transplants for graft versus host disease um, we were really setting it up f- to treat leukemia with bone marrow transplant. But then we started to wonder well why not just attack attack the cancer cells directly sure. with drugs, and that's where you know I started to think about m- more and more about a desire to produce a drug that's, that, that, could, that could actually give to patients to cure their cancer. Sure, sure. So when I met you, uh, it was probably the earlier 2000s, I remember you said to me that your goal when you started this program was that you wanted to cure one person <laughs> of cancer, which was actually my goal too, <laughs> um, with a drug that you had created, except I wasn't creating it. I was... I was raising the money to have someone like you create it. Um, by the time you were 65, we're not going to talk about how old either of us are. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get back to that to see if that actually occurred. <laughs> and I'm not going to spill that story yet. Um, I'm going to let you tell that story. But I want to give our listeners a bit of history as to our charity's relationship with you, Dan. A few years ago, after you developed your program, um, you came and you asked us for seed funding. 
and I think it was in the amount of $50,000. And at that time, you were engineering drugs specific to pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I think, 2007. And since then, you've worked on creating drugs for pancreatic cancer. Um, then in 2011, you added the twist to the drugs that engaged the immune system. Uh, In 2014, you created last chance drugs for lymphomas. You've worked on osteosarcomas, uh, worked in the area of developing trikes, which we're going to let you talk about in a little bit. And now you're testing new drugs uh, in both dogs and humans with osteosarcoma. What a ride. Um, I would love for you to talk about the evolution of your work, where cancer research is headed, and finally, did you cure that one person of cancer by the time you were 65? You could take those uh, one at a time. So let's start with let's start with the evolution of your work. Okay. Well, let's. That's a good lead-in to really explain the importance of how Shaver Foundation money is really used, uh, because generally speaking, um, it's extremely important. All researchers in general, and many at the university rely on getting grants from the National Institutes of Health. There are all types of grants that you can get, but to get grants to do these, these very, very expensive proce- projects because all of this stuff is, 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 is unbelievably expense, expensive. I mean, there are mouse strains where you're going to pay a, even $100 for a single mouse if you're going to do experiments with mice, and you may take 100, 100 mice to do an Some experiment. Some of those mice, those new, the, the immune-suppressed mice, especially those bioengineered, those, they're really expensive. Oh, We're yeah. Always crazy. Shocked to see We're crazy. shocked yeah. to see oh, yeah. how much a mouse is. But, like, but, really? Yeah. It's not your <laughs> average <laughs> Mickey mouse. It's not your average pet <laughs> no, shop no, mouse. No, no, definitely is. But... But um, generally speaking, research across the board, whether you're talking about mice or you're talking about supplies or or the equipment necessary to do it. I mean, m- many machines now are, are, are in excess of $100,000 that do these very sophisticated analyses that you see uh, that, 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 that can be u- used as incredible tools to cure cancer, the genomics and everything. But it's all very, very expensive. And so the idea here is, and with the shaver money, and it's, it's been extremely important to the people, to the researchers at the University of Minnesota and, and, and anybody that's, that, that's, that's asked the foundation for money, um, it, the, 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 the idea here is, is you have to get seed support first. So the shaver grants, I mean, they're, they can run into a lot of money. I mean, you're talking about when you guys do give a grant, it can range anywhere from maybe, what, what 20000 to $50,000, $60,000. Yeah, we've gone up to eighty-five. Right. So, you know, you can projects. go for – it depends on the project, and right. it depends on how close it is to getting right. to a, a clinical trial. Right. So if you if – you, if you, you have to. So the, the context of how we created this is your first seed – Funding grant um, is twenty five thousand, and that's usually what it takes to get you off the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And then after you receive that first twenty five, you can ask for anything you want. And um, you know, this year I'm proud to say that we're going to give away a million dollars. And that wasn't the case when you started in two thousand seven. No, I didn't have. So when we were giving you fifty thousand dollars, we were probably giving you, you know, a quarter of our budget. You know, I mean, we were we were we were putting our Right. All of our eggs in your basket right. because hanging our hats there. yeah, we were hanging our hats there because I believed in you so much. Right. So but 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 if you would look, I would 
bet that any of this money that you give to the university is magnified at least 10 to 20 times with what they can do with that money in the long run. Because once you get the data, the preliminary data, then that leads you in to apply to the NIH sure. with stronger and stronger grants that can get you these long-term running R01s that go for longer than a year. And that's really the value of the Shaver money. And it's incredibly important is what the point is, is that to your to the listeners, I mean, it's 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 incredibly important uh, because, uh, you know, even young researchers and getting established. I mean, you have to have this type of funding and Shaver. Well, one of the smartest things that you ever did, I think, was go to the university and negotiate a lower administrative cost for your grants so that the university doesn't take hardly anything and you give the money out. So I, I remember mean, that. That zero. Uh, <laughs> how how tough am I? Though? I know. You there's were that, tough. She's a tough there's that half. Uh, there's that half of me. There's the the Slovak side of me that's <laughs> gentle persuasion, and then there's the Italian side of me that says, "Right, no, that is right. not going to happen." That says we're going to put you I, in cement. Let me talk to my uncle Dominic about that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I I guess, in my opinion, Dan, and you can tell me if I'm all wet, but. When I started doing this, it's very hard to raise money, and um, I don't think people realize when they're listening how hard it is to raise a million dollars. No, but I think I think that these conversations are good for people to know that when you when you get into this business, it's not cut and dry, Dan. No, it's not. And clear as mud. You and you yourself know how hard it is to raise money for the work that you. Do. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. Right. How many grants do you actually write a year? Oh, probably now uh, at least uh, four or five, six. You know, I, you got to keep writing them. You know, you, you have just to keep, keep writing, writing them. them. Yeah. And how long does it take you to write a grant? Takes me a while. I mean, it can take me two or three months to write wow. a decent grant. You know, really? To, yeah, because you know, it, it uh, it's hard to believe that it takes that long, but it does. Yeah, but see, people think, oh, writing a grant is like, oh, spend a night write a grant. It's not like right. that. Right. You have to have preliminary data. It all has to be perfectly presented. And now uh, you have to score at least like a 90 out of 100 to get the grant. <laughs> so right. Well, and it's a competitive process. Uh, it's, it's a competitive You're competing process. competing for this pot what of money. What percentage of people actually get those grants? Let's talk about it. 10% probably. Or it can be less than 10%. Less than 10%. I knew it was low. Yeah. But I wasn't mm -hmm. sure about it. I thought it was even getting narrower. It can. It depends on the type of grant and where, but it can even be less than 10%, depending on the type of grant that it is. It's very competitive to get grants. Oh, so when you do, it's really quite, a, uh, quite no, an yeah, accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of those grants at the university, too. Yeah, yeah. And then you're competing with people that are getting grants from all over the country. I right. mean, you know, that's just not right. just Minnesota grants, right. you know. Right. Um, okay, so we talk about that evolution of your work. Where you started out, talk about the pancreatic cancer work. What were your challenges? What were your success mm -hmm. stories? Talk about that. Yeah, so at, at that point, you know, uh, having really uh, learned a lot from the bone marrow transplant end of it and, and that we could use antibodies to selectively target either cancer cells or any cell that we wanted to target. Uh, and we knew that we could use these very potent toxins to do it. Um, we started out doing biochemical linkages of just doing antibodies to toxins, and we chose markers that were to target. We chose markers to target that were on pancreatic cancer cells and other types of carcinoma cells as well. And um, in doing these types of studies with, uh, with, with the toxins, we began with ricin. An interesting part of this story is, is, is that at one point then, um, because somebody had used ricin in a way they shouldn't have used ricin, 
uh, politically, uh, Homeland Security came to us and said, can't use ricin anymore. We basically had to, had to turn in uh, several grams of, of, of ricin and destroy it and then switch over to another toxin. Well, at that time, the technology was available to actually uh, clone genes, DNA. Uh, I'm try, just trying to think of the best way to explain this. But um, generally what you, what you could do is use the DNA information of a particular gene that encoded the toxin and, and make it uh, and, 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 and make your toxin uh, in, in a fermentation process once you clone the gene for the toxin, and then we were able to do that. And so we started out at that point with a toxin now called diphtheria toxin. I mean, it was just as bad as ricin, but it wasn't on the Homeland Security list. Right. Well, <laughs> that's the way you have to do it then. Yeah, right. Yeah, really. you got to go through right. the back door. Right. And so um, we began studies uh, you know, uh, of these, and the idea at this point for me, and even John Kersey had told me it's, it, it, you may be biting off a little more than you can chew, is that I really felt that we could somehow actually not only invent the drugs at the University of Minnesota and test them at the University of Minnesota, but we could, uh, we could make them in a facility here and get them through the FDA and actually test them as homegrown drugs, you know, that were entirely Incredible. manufactured here. Incredible. Yeah, right. Well, Ahead I, of your time. I may have, I may have bitten off a little more <laughs> than I could chew in that regard, but, but yes, we were, we were able to do that. And the interesting thing is, is that old facility on the St. Paul campus where they used to make the A. LG for Nigerian right. became a facility then where you could make uh, proteins for clinical trials here at the university. It started off just with cells, and then it went to proteins that we were able to manufacture here. Excellent. So, so that's when we started really uh, trying to guide our research into the area of, of drugs that we could actually make and manufacture here. Uh, unfortunately, that the pancreatic drug that we made was not one that we were that we could get to clinical trial at that time. There were too many impediments to it, and so uh, we decided to concentrate on uh, on a drug that could be used to treat liquid tumors like leukemias and lymphomas, mm -hmm. and that's where we we ended up cloning the DT twenty two nineteen, which is a drug that, that that we actually could make here at the University of Minnesota. It actually consisted of two antibodies that were linked to a toxin. And both of those antibodies could then bind to a lymphoma cancer cell uh, and destroy it. And the idea there was that, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a, a double-edged sword. If one of the antibodies failed, then the other antibodies was there sort of to take up the slack. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of times you get resistance where, you know, uh, some cells get used to a particular market that's called resistance, and they develop resistance in that way, and then... Uh, you know, we were able to produce a drug that could do that and could bring that to clinical trial. End of part one.